My text tonight is Psalm 14 and verse 1a. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And our study tonight is entitled, A Fool's Paradise. Perhaps that's a phrase you've heard before, someone's in a fool's paradise. What do we mean by that? A fool's paradise, to give the two aspects of that phrase, in the first case it seems that they are in a seemingly ideal state of affairs. But the fool's aspect of it is that they don't realise that the state of affairs they've chosen to be in is one that's drastically flawed and can change for the worse, even though at the present time they persuade themselves it's not going to. For example, splashing out on a credit card when you can't afford to repay it. For a while you enjoy the results of that, but then when it comes to repayment, you can't. Or to think of another uh, rather artificial example, in a very beautiful part of the world, a lovely climate, lovely vegetation, lovely conditions, and you build your house on the side of a rumbling volcano. It's a fool's paradise. It is no place of safety and ultimate blessing, and you become a fool because it's obvious to those that can see it. Well, here we have the spiritual fool's paradise. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That is his paradise. That is his excuse for enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. That is his apparent protection, the fact that God is invisible, that the, we cannot see him, we cannot see the essence of God. And the fool works on that to say, there is no God. It's like sheltering in some very tropical, perhaps very um, damp situation where there's a huge number of spiders and they, they spin these, this lovely gossamer roof of webs and say, well, there's a good roof under which I can shelter. I'll lie down and rest there for the night. But any rain or any kind of other uh, material will fall straight through that roof. It isn't protection. It's a fool's paradise. And so it is to say that there is no God is a fool's paradise. It doesn't last. And there's another, <coughs> sorry, there is a prominence given to this particular passage in the scripture. Perhaps uh, you weren't aware of this, but this is a psalm that's repeated almost word for word in Psalm 53. If you were to read Psalm 53, place it along psalm, alongside Psalm 14, you'll see that it's almost the same, not quite. There's one major difference, which I, I'll point out just in a minute or two, but it's almost the same. There's an emphasis here. The Lord, as he compiled the Psalter, wanted Old Testament Israel to get hold of this. It's the fool who said in his heart that there is no God. But this is not just something within the Old Testament. It's particularly prominent in New Testament teaching. And perhaps if you have a margin in your Bible, you will see a reference because there is a very important quotation from Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3 
as the Apostle Paul proves, having proved, should I say, that all are under sin, all are under the judgment of God, he then explains what that sin involves. And then in doing that, in Romans 3, he quotes from Psalm 14 in verses 10 to 12. As he says, Jew and Gentiles, they're all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. It's a quotation from Psalm 14, or largely so. So where to get it? We have to get this. We have to to know what it is that is here being said. It's obviously important. It's important for everybody. It's important for us. I want to look first at the condition that is here being described in this particular statement. We should just get the point that this is not hate language in Scripture. This is not gratuitous insult. You know, God's just delighting to insult everybody and call it by calling them fools. It, this isn't that kind of naming. It's a sober diagnosis. It's an objective diagnosis. Perhaps it helps us if we think of the, uh, the word folly, which is related to fools. Uh, and we realize then perhaps something of this objective flavor. He's describing those who have folly. And if there is any emotion in this statement, it's certainly not anger and contempt in a sort of wrong human sense. If there's any emotion here, it seems to me that it's likely to be surprise and shock that God looks down upon the human race who quite clearly he has made in his own image. As it says in Genesis 1, it says, male and female, he made them. In the image of God, he created him. As he looks down on ones who are created in his image, to see them deny his existence, you get a sense that there is shock here. There's amazement at such folly. That, I think, would be the prevailing emotion if we could read the emotion behind the statement. What exactly is being said here as we consider the condition? Well, we need to realize that the word fool in the Hebrew is Nabal, the very name that we were reading about in 1 Samuel 25, the name of Abigail's husband, a churlish and an evil man. So the word fool here doesn't mean what some would have thought, perhaps that it's a sort of jester, a kind of idiot. It's not that at all. This is spiritual folly that's here being described. We might describe it as aggressive ungodliness. Aggressive ungodliness. The fool who said in his heart, there is no God. It's, it's an ungodliness with, which has contempt mixed into it, the contempt of heaven, the contempt of the invisible God to deny his very existence. The opposite of folly is wisdom. And again, that helps us to realize that the the content of the word fool here. If you think of wisdom or wise, and then the spiritual opposite 
is fool. And the book of Proverbs has much to say about wisdom and folly, and therefore much to say about the fool. Uh, Let me just pick out two or three verses which will help us to understand what's the condition here being described. In Proverbs chapter 1 and verses 29 and 30, uh, we read about those who despise wisdom, uh, who hate knowledge, which is what a fool does. For they that hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof. Or in chapter 14 and verse 9, Fools make a mock at sin, but among the righteous there is favor. So straight away we realize that what is being described, the kind of person that's here being described, is not someone who's half-witted, but someone who might be very quick, quick to speak, quick to think, quick to see the funny side, so-called, of what is sinful, quick to make a joke out of what shouldn't be joked about. That's just one example of this folly at work, this aggressive ungodliness. And as the psalm puts it so powerfully, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He said it, but he hasn't necessarily said it out loud. He might be just a bit too canny to do that, but it's in his heart It's very deep-seated. He is what's been called a practical atheist. That is, in his heart, he says there's no God. And, of course, eventually it will come out of his mouth because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But in his heart, he says it because in practice, he is an atheist. In practice, he behaves as though there is no God. So it's something very deep-seated, in the fool. I think this comes out particularly in Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 22. Though thou shouldest bray a fool in a mortar among wheat with a pestle, yet will not his foolishness depart from him. We can sense Solomon's irony here, can't we? Uh, you can just get this fool and you can put him there in a pestle and you can bray him, you can cut him into little bits. As we will put it today, you can get right down to the DNA, but you'll never separate any bit of him from folly because it's it's so deep-seated. This is the condition that's being described. And notice in verse 1 of this psalm, it moves from the singular to the plural, effortlessly, seamlessly. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. So the psalmist uh, is here talking about individuals, but he's also talking about society as a whole. And this brings us to the difference between Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Um, The major difference is this. In Psalm 14, it says there is no Jehovah. In Psalm 53, it says there is no Elohim. The word that's used for God in Psalm 14 is the word that particularly belongs to Israel, with God as her covenant Lord. 
The word that's used in Psalm 53 is a word that's used, Elohim, of the sovereign, almighty God, the Lord of the whole earth. So we can say this, one psalm is particularly talking about Israel, the nation that is of Israel, or we might say the church, and the other psalm is speaking about the Gentile world, the whole of humanity, whatever their religious background, who acknowledge or know at least in some sense that there is a sovereign God, even if they do not acknowledge it. Because the psalmist is saying, this is how God sees us as we are in our sins, whether we are belonging to the church or whether we're not belonging to the church. This is how we're born. This is our native state. This is our natural condition. There's the ungodly in Israel, but there's also the ungodly in the world. So he's not, the psalmist is not Uh, just talking about unbelievers who happen to be in churches. He's talking about unbelievers everywhere. This is how Christ sees the world. I'm not going to say he sees the world as a lunatic asylum because that is really not the way the word fool is being used here. Because this is, as I've already said, this is to do with something much, much deeper and more extensive than just insanity is to do with aggressive ungodliness. So he's describing ordinary people. He's describing intellectual people. He's describing influential people. He's describing celebrities. He's describing the outwardly religious. He's saying, as we're born into this world, we're born into a world of fools, And yet the world so often hails the philosophy behind these people as wisdom. And of course we need to remember that everyone's theology comes out sooner or later in their lives. We all follow the inclinations or the affections, to use a theological word, of our hearts. And so whether or not we say it, if we are practical atheists, it will come out in one way or another. That is the condition here being described. I want to look secondly at the character of the fool. The character. Not departing very much from Psalm 14, keeping that in mind. Well, as we've already indicated, firstly we can say this kind of folly is a complete delusion. It hides behind the invisibility of God. It's really living in denial. We've heard of denial perhaps in the context of substance abuse, of drug or alcohol addiction. And often an addict has to be brought out of that condition before that person will face up to what needs to be done to be out of addiction. They have to stop living in denial. And here is humankind living in denial. Let me give you an example of that. There was a Nobel Prize winner called Dr. George Wald. I don't know the exact pronunciation of that, W-A-L-D. He won a Nobel Prize in biology for his work on the retina. He died in 1997. And this is what he said. And he did articulate what so many people continue to believe. 
He said there are only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation, that life arose from non-living matter, was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. That leaves us with only one possible conclusion, that life arose as a creative act of God. I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation arising to evolution. Well, that's a fool speaking, an intelligent man, but a spiritual fool. That's aggressive ungodliness, and it is a delusion. And of course, it's essentially a religious, or should I say an irreligious stance, but it's a religious stance because it is saying my religion keeps God out. I, I have a, another kind of faith but it's not based on the evidence. It ignores the evidence. Well, what is the evidence for God? Well, I haven't time, of course, to go through all the various evidences of God tonight, but let me just quickly refer you to Romans chapter 1 and verses 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Do you see where the Apostle Paul is coming from here? He's not spending hours, as it were, over all the evidences of God. He's just saying this. There's no problem with the revelation. There's no problem with the information that is coming to people. As he says, it's clearly seen. So uh, there's no problem with the information of the invisible things of God. And there's no problem with the reception of it. Everyone is a receiver of this, and there's no problem for anybody. Being understood, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and God up and Godhead. So he could have talked about the stars, the universe, the witness of creation, the witness of the conscience, and such things. And the Bible does speak about these things. But ultimately what he's saying is this. Everyone knows, in the same sense that you can take a fool and bray him with a mortar and pestle and he's got folly in every little bit that comes out of that pulverization, in the same way you can say you can pulverize a person and every little bit of them knows, clearly sees and understands the eternal power and Godhead of God. That's why it's total delusion and folly to live in this fool's paradise. I wonder if anybody here is in that paradise 
or trying to be. Of course, there's vested interests in denying this. The vested interest is that I can do what I want, when I want, and how I want. If I deny it, that's what I think. We have examples in the scriptures of such fools. Nabal is a clear example. Let me just refer you back to to 1 Samuel 25. And you'll see that there's something typological, really, in this relationship between Nabal and David. David is a type of Christ. And Nabal is clearly a fool, a fool by name and a fool by nature. Churlish and evil in his doings. And as even his servants say, you can't even speak to him. You can't uh, spend the time of day with him. He won't listen to you. He won't, under, he won't have anything. He, he won't listen to reason, in other words. And yet, as is quite clear uh, from what the servants, his own servants say, uh, David and his men were like a protective wall around the affairs of Nabal. They were a wall unto us, both by night and day. And all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep, they protected them. They looked after them. They did this gratuitously. They did this out of the goodness of their hearts. They kept them from the Philistines. They kept the sheep from the wolves. They were there caring for them, protecting them. Isn't that a picture of the relationship between God and every individual in this world? Who makes his sun to shine upon the good and upon the unrighteous, who gives us food in, uh, in, in, in its season, who cares for us, who gives us fresh air to breathe and his, his soil to, to tread upon. He looks after us. And yet see how Nabal treats him with the contempt. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? It's like Pharaoh, isn't it? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? There'd be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. And there's total ingratitude and total covetousness there. Shall I take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my sharers and give it unto men whom I know not? Selfishness, anger, idolatry. Here's a very good example of what is involved with the aggressive ungodliness of the human heart in its natural state. And you see it even goes on to death. Look at verses 36 and following in that 1 Samuel 25. Some people think that when we come to death, if we're not Christians, well, we will soften ourselves and come to know the Lord at that time and just slip quietly into heaven. Not a bit of it. You see, the fool would rather become like a stone, would rather just die, would rather commit suicide than turn to the Lord. When Abigail tells Nabal what has happened and how he had only saved, had his life saved through her intercession and what a fool he'd been, his heart died within him. He became a stone, but he didn't repent. And ten days later, he died. That's the death of someone who is wise in their own conceits. It's delusive. Much more quickly, it is degrading. 
This spiritual folly is degrading. Look what the scriptures say about the fool. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy or stinking, as I have it in my margin. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And part of that degradation is callousness to those who are vulnerable. So in verse 4, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. We see how it is here that ungodliness comes out in behavior and it comes out in a selfish callousness as it did in the case of Nabal and as it does in the case of how people are treated by those whose faith is not in the Lord Jesus Christ so often. I won't say in every single instance, of course not, but I'm talking in general broad brush terms. It's the atheists and ungodly of this world who are callous to the vulnerable. So from their theory of evolution, many of them, they advocate, many of them advocate abortion and euthanasia. And they advocate uh, the care of animals at the expense of human beings. They say, well, here's a whale, here's a gorilla, it's got as much right to live as a man. That's callousness. Transgender ideology is sheer callousness. It is callous to the vulnerable. It is callous to little children. And often you find that the first casualties of the kind of callousness that comes out of ungodliness and folly is, are, I should say, women. Women. Women are often engineering their own difficulties when they engage in militant feminism because then they move outside of those God-ordained roles that they should have and they make a whole heap of difficulties for themselves. And it's the poor and the vulnerable that suffer. It's degrading. It's dehumanizing. And then thirdly, it's disastrous. It's disastrous. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Why? Because he's not looking at the evidence. Why? Because he's degrading himself. Why? Because ultimately the paradise is going to be swallowed up in God's judgment, just as it was in the case of Nabal, just as it is in the case of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, who built his barns, who filled his barns with goods and said, soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and so on. And God says, you're a fool because tonight your soul will be required of you. It is folly not to heed where everything is going, which is to the last judgment. It is folly not to heed the fact that we have just one life and then it's after death, the judgments. It's a disaster. Oh, if there's anyone here tonight with this kind of folly ruining and ruining, ruling your heart, I pray that God will give you repentance. I pray that you'll be wise. There's a call in the scriptures to those in high places 
to be wise. It's found in Psalm 2 and verses 10 and following. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. You see what he's saying? There's going to be an end of things. You're going to have to face the Son of God, who's on the throne of God. God has said to him, Thou art my Son, today I have begotten thee. And you're going to have to face him. Now be wise, therefore, and kiss him. Come with the kiss of submission, that is. And that's God's words to the rulers of the nations. And that's what we should pray for, for our Prime Minister and for President Putin, and for all the other presidents and prime ministers in the world. But it's also a word to ordinary people, this word, this call to wisdom, to the opposite of folly. In Proverbs chapter 1, we find that Solomon shows just how wisdom is at work. In chapter 1, verse 20, wisdom crieth without, she uttereth her voice in the streets, She crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates, in the city she uttereth her words, saying, How long, ye simple ones, would ye love simplicity, and the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. There's speech pouring forth. It pours forth, of course, from the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. It pours forth this wordless message to a a universe of fools, a world of fools. But it pours forth in the preaching of the words. It pours forth from Christian churches, true Christian churches. It pours forth from true gospel pulpits. God is saying, turn, turn at my reproof and I will pour my spirit out unto you. Seek true wisdom. And of course that true wisdom is found in the Lord Jesus Christ because he has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And that wisdom which is from above is pure and peaceable and gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits. It's the very character of the Lord Jesus as he indwells you and replaces the incredible folly with deep and sweet and meek humility and submission and wisdom. Yes, it's, it's quite a dark psalm, is Psalm 14. It's describing man in, as he is. But there's a note of hope at the end. Let me close by just pointing that to you. Verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. There is such a thing as a whole nation turning from its folly into wisdom. There is such a thing as the salvation of Israel coming out of Zion, as God blessing his people, bringing them out of their captivity to sin and to folly. And we know what it is. It's called revival. It's called gospel blessing. And we know that the scriptures hold out such hope of that. Let us pray for that.
Let us pray for people that they'll be turned from their folly and from their suppression of the evidence and from, from their spiritual madness. Amen.